Ooh, a spicy question. I <laughs> because love it. Because the writing is sort of everything, right? Like you can, can fix plot holes, but if the yeah. writing... So some there. readers love that and some readers are like, but I wanted more of this. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of a gamble. Hello and welcome back to the Right and Wrong podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined um, all the way from New York City uh, by an Australian author whose debut novel, The Collected Regrets of Clover, will be coming out as of this going live. It's Mickey Brammer. Hi, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Let's start with the book. Tell us a little bit about it. So The Collective Regrets of Clover is about a 30-something death doula based in New York City who's dedicated her life to helping usher people peacefully through the dying process. But in doing so, she hasn't really lived a life of her own and she realizes that she regrets that. And so through working with these clients, she begins to consider what it means to live a beautiful life and to think about whether that's still possible for her. It's such a great concept. It really plays with the, because um, I always flippantly say to people like, oh, you do this thing and I'll live vicariously through you. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what the whole thing's about really, isn't it? She's kind of realizing that she's lived her whole life vicariously. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and as you mentioned, that a huge part of this novel is these really sweet and genuine kind of cross-generational relationships that she has with people who are much, much older than her for the most part. Um and it's it's kind of a lovely reminder of the the wisdom that comes with age. Um, but what kind of what drew you into that? What what made you interested in that kind of um, big kind of age gap relationship and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, so I'm from Tasmania, and I was my brother and I were raised by a single mother um, from a very young age. And we um, kind of when you're in that situation, if you're lucky, you're you're raised by a village. You know, we have a lot of relatives in mm-hmm. Tasmania, so a lot of people really stepped in and helped uh, with looking after us and, you know, guiding us and things like that. And among them were this amazing flock of of great aunts and (laughs) along with my grandparents as well. And so we spent a lot of time with them and, you know, I really loved the way they saw the world and the way they shaped my view of the world. You know, they really instilled curiosity and adventure and my love of storytelling and also these women you know were very kind of adventurous for their time because they were traveling the world at a time when it wasn't very common for women to be doing that solo and they would send me postcards and things like that so it really they were the people who showed me there was a world out there and also I just feel like in um in general we we tend to lock our elderly away at the end and discount them and just think that they have no wisdom to share when in truth, they've really been, they're the ones that have lived the most of life. And so they're the ones that have the wisdom uh, to share from all the challenges they face. And I think we should be valuing that more than we do in Western society, at least. Yes. No, I, I completely agree. There's a sort of scale of time that you can never get until you are a certain age mm-hmm. and you have that kind of experience and you can look back and be like, oh, I I see, you know, the things that really mattered, things that didn't matter and this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you think some of those are some of the characters in the book, are they very much taken from kind of your experiences of, of these, this like flock of great aunts that you knew when you were growing up? Yeah. A lot of them there, I would say they're kind of an amalgamation right, of yeah, all of yeah, those yeah. people with a, a bit of my mum thrown in um, okay. <laughs> and then grandparents. And also I do, I've always loved spending time with the elderly. So I've done quite a lot of volunteering uh, and in New York, I do the, I think called friendly visiting and it's when you go and spend 
you know, a couple of hours on, say, a Sunday with an elderly person who doesn't really have any family or friends, you know, just to give them that social interaction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I really loved that because you would hear the most amazing stories and there were such interesting people. So there's a kind of a, a little, a few of those in there as well. Okay. So this is, this is really quite a sort of, um, it's not really biographical, but it's very much like a personal thing. Like it's very rooted in your own experiences kind of throughout your life. Yeah, definitely with the wisdom that the the people share in the guidance. Uh, I feel like there's a, a lot of us have that one person in our life, you, the older person who's really our guide and often steps in even in a parent role. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to kind of pay tribute to that because they are such significant people in our lives. Yes. Whilst reading this, I read all sorts, um, but I do definitely have a soft spot for books with short snappy chapters and lots mm-hmm. lots of page breaks is that just the kind of natural way with which you kind of write the way you tell your stories it is but i also do it to uh to make the process easier for the reader okay. i as a reader like to feel like you know i have momentum through a book and i think i don't know if it's a, an actual technical term but the concept of potato chip chapters so you know you're just kind of like one more one more. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. um, and I really appreciate those kind of, I think I'm more of a succinct writer just by nature. And that mm-hmm. could be from being a journalist, but I really appreciate, um, for example, the the writer Martha Gellhorn, she didn't write fiction. Um, she was a journalist, but in some of her books, she I always admired her for the way that she could say so much in a really short sentence. And yes. I think that's a lot harder than being very, wordy and verbose and I really admire that and I think I'd probably be a bit more descriptive than her but I really aspire to kind of do as much with as little as possible yeah 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 Yeah, I mean it's that's the like one of the sort of most difficult skills with writing isn't it is how short can your sentence be but conveying the most information in detail absolutely yeah, yeah, I like that um, the potato chip uh, metaphor because it is you, you sort of get cheeky with books with um, with short chapters or, or lots of page breaks, and you think, yeah. oh, just one more. I could, I could just. It's like oh, I've got to go in fifteen minutes. I could fit one more chapter in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or when you're going to sleep and you're like, oh, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. I could probably do one more chapter and then five chapters later. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's nice to fly <laughs> through a story. It's like for me, I love that experience as a reader, so I really wanted to try to create that especially with the story of Clover because she is alone for a lot Mm. of the chapters. And I think if they were really long chapters, that could feel a bit like it was plodding. So in order to counter that, I think the shorter chapters kind of help hopefully to, to propel them through. Yes, 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 yes. And did, uh, are you, when you, when you kind of came to write this, are you the sort of person that plans things out sort of meticulously or was it a sort of, I'm going to wing it, see where, see where we land? No, I'm a, definitely, I like winging things. That's kind of <laughs> my approach to life. Um, well, I, you know, I plan to a point, but mm-hmm. um, I think just for my creative process, it works a lot better when it's just given the freedom to to come out when it needs to. So I don't really have a writing routine or anything like that. And when writing the book, I didn't write it chronologically. I just wrote parts and it was like putting a puzzle really? piece together yet filling in the gaps. I kind of I knew where I wanted to end up. So I knew the ending and then kind of filled it in along the way. 
Oh, that's interesting. Sort of like a like a coloring book, but you yeah, didn't do exactly. It in any kind of yeah, order. <laughs> mm-hmm. that's because I I know I I've spoken to a few authors that have done that, but often the book itself is not chronological, whereas this is a chronological yeah narrative. Yeah. That's interesting. So when you say you plan to a point, is it you just you know where it's going to start, you know where it's going to end, or is is it is there more detail than that? Yeah, I would say actually. Well, when I started it, because I'd never written a book before, I didn't really know. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> where it was going to go. I was just like a death doula and she keeps notebooks and that's all I had. And then I thought, okay, well, what is she going to do for 90,000 words? So, um, but I would say what I like to do was, is really sit with the story because I'm a, a, quite a daydreamer anyway. Mm-hmm. And I have a, a, I'm often in my imagination. And so for a few months, I kind of, what, and especially with this, I had the idea rolling through my head for quite a long time. And so I think I was building it in my head and same with the characters, really fleshing them out in my head. So when it came time to write it, it was all there. And I kind of knew what, how I wanted Clover to end up personally. And so it was then kind of arranging all the parts to facilitate that growth, essentially. Oh, it's interesting. And and you said this is the first um, novel that you'd ever written? Yeah. I mean, I'd written something like a, I, when I first moved to New York, I was a copy editor and you have a lot of downtime as a copy editor. So, <laughs> yeah. because I don't like just sitting around, I wrote, I would say I wrote 70,000 words, but I wouldn't say it was a book. It was more just to see if I could write 70,000 words. So this was the first time I actually sat down and be like, no, I want to try to write a book, you know, with, okay. with a, you know, a, a, a plot that makes yes. sense. With a coherent story that starts exactly. and has a middle and has an end. And, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. But you are, as you mentioned, you are a journalist. Yes. Um, and you do, you write for, um, is it like arts and design and, and architectural publications? Exactly. Yes. How did you get into that? Um, when I was in Australia, I was a, I, the editor of a pop culture magazine and aspects of that was design and architecture and art. So I always really liked mm. it. And then when I moved to New York, I kind of, fell into that because I didn't have any contacts here. So that's why I started out as a copy editor at an architecture and design magazine. And then from there started writing for them and became one of their editors. And now I've been here 10 years and I love it. You know, it's my favorite kind of subject matter. So I feel really grateful that I was able to build a career here writing about beautiful homes and art. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. Does any of that kind of uh that experience and that kind of, I guess it's a very different style but like does any of it ever kind of bleed into um you know your 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 writing of fiction I did a lot actually I also did a lot of travel writing I wrote about um design hotels for a while but uh-huh. um the travel writing definitely influences it in terms of the descriptions of place right. because with travel writing you really are always thinking about the sensory things you know what can you smell what can you see what does it feel oh, like yeah. to touch something So I really do use those details a lot. And then from the architecture perspective as well, I really, uh, I'm not sure sure everyone would notice it, but I really made sure people's spaces said something about their character. So for example, (laughs) Clover's apartment is, you know, very cluttered and, you know, but full of stuff that doesn't belong to her. It was her grandfather's and, you know, that's part of the emotional tie that she had with him she can't give it away and then you know her neighbor has a very minimalist apartment and that's reflecting of kind of her and then Claudia has you know she lives in this beautiful townhouse on the upper 
West Side, which you think would be amazing, but she kind of resents it. And so I really wanted to use people's homes and living spaces as kind of a commentary on their character. Yeah, it's kind of doing a lot of um, exposition through yeah. the, yeah, that's awesome. You must really, um, I, I bet you you get through the kind of descriptions of places very quickly from all the practice that you've had doing it. You just know how to like describe places. Yeah, it is a lot easier. But one thing I wanted to make sure was that I wasn't kind of using words that were, you know, architectural words and things like that, that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. would make people not alienate people, but kind of slow them in the reading process. Again, thinking about that reader experience. So the challenge was really kind of describing it, but in a way that would make sense to someone who doesn't have any background in design and architecture. Yes. And I guess my follow on what I'm wondering is having, you know, worked within journalism, Mm -hmm. um, I've had a few journalists on the podcast who are journalists who have then written, um, novels and kind of gone from journalism, which is one distinct sort of area of publishing to prose and like books and and full manuscripts, which is a very different thing. Did, did you find the kind of experience between those two different things quite jarring? Yeah, it was actually because, you know, with journalism, you are writing, you know, a story, maybe 700 to 1,000 words, you submit it, and then you don't really don't often think about it again. Um, yeah. Like you may be reflecting back, but it's not something that kind of follows you um, or that, you know, if someone asks you what you're working on, it will always be something different. And so I kind of liked that because it was always something new and I like to, I really like variety. So to be working on the same thing with the same characters and the same plot for an extended amount of time was really different. It felt like a different muscle. And so in writing it, I really did try to break it down into, okay, which the chapters are generally, you know, between 1,000 to 2,000 words. So it was kind Uh, of like, well, it's like writing an article almost and didn't always work that way. But um, I found it easy when I kind of approached it that way rather than just one giant manuscript. That makes sense. Now we're getting to the to the crux. Of that. So that's kind of why they're structured that way because yeah. that's that's what you're used to, and that kind of that makes yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, how did you find? Because um, I know that from people I've spoken to, this is a huge difference between publishing novels and publishing uh, journalism, mag- magazines, newspapers. Is uh, editorial? How did you find editorial compared? Yeah, I actually am someone who loves being edited. <laughs> and I really love collaboration. I love bouncing ideas. And I also believe that no writer is at their best right out of the gate. I think mm-hmm. like editors exist for a reason. And having worked as an editor, I kind of understand what it means to work with writers and retain their voices and, and things like that. And so I had a great experience because my book actually sold in the US, the UK and Australia around exactly the same time. So those three editors worked together to give me feedback on the initial manuscript. Uh, And then so I received one document from them with all their comments, which was really great because, you know, they didn't always agree. And in that case, I could, you know, really decide which way I wanted to go. And it was really nice to have three brilliant brains giving me feedback on this story. And they really helped me elevate it to a place that I'm confident I wouldn't have gotten to on my own just because it's really hard to see outside your own perspective and having these other people who have been in the business for a long time and are excellent at what they do. Um, they can really help you pull out those things that make the story sing. 
Yeah, exactly. Because it's most of the time it's just because you're too close to it, and exactly. you you know you almost know too much mm. about what's happening. So like where there's a gap, you don't see it because your brain's already filled. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo Fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, exactly. And also they just, um, I think, you know, initially there were some things that I was like, oh, no, I'm not changing that. And it's always that <laughs> initial ego sting. And then you think you're only like, well, actually they have a point. And then you remove it and then you never miss it in future drafts. So I think trusting... Yeah. There are like maybe probably 10% of things that I decided to keep as is, but I think generally, you know, trust that these people know what they're doing. Yeah. And I guess when you have three editors, if all three of them flag the same thing, that's probably, it's like, yeah, maybe that should be changed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Dialing it back a bit, because I I do want to talk about the, the, the editors and the middle being picked up, but before we get there, um, you'd never written anything before you. So did you fin- did you write this and you were working kind of in isolation by yourself and then you started submitting it and sending it to agents? Yeah. So like I said, I had the idea for a while and then like I think most people who have books coming out now um, sat down and wrote it in lockdown. Yeah. Um, and I worked with a critique partner. Mm-hmm. And because I do like that collaboration and bouncing ideas aspect, I was sending her the, each chapter as I wrote it. So in a very raw form. But that right. was really great because it's a, a friend of mine who, you know, we have similar writing styles and approaches to writing. And so she really understood what I was trying to do, especially because it was such an unusual idea. And to have someone who understands what you're trying to achieve and also understands or knows all these characters really well, that was so helpful because I would say, oh, I really need Clover to get to this point emotionally. What situation could I put her in? And then this friend was really great. Um, her name's Katie Mualek, and she's also a developmental editor. But she um, she really helped me, you know, build it out. And that was such a rewarding process. Okay. And then so from that, that did you did you just kind of submit to a bunch of agents? And, and yes. Then... Yes. Sorry. So yes, once I did that, I sent it to beta readers. Um, okay. A few people, um, one of whom was my mum. Um, and then, you know, people who aren't, you know, so Katie is a writer and editor, but some, I consciously send it to people who weren't just to get feedback from just a general reader's point of view. It's very different from someone who's in the sort of writing and publishing versus out. Exactly. And the things they pick up on are so interesting that you would never have thought. And I think it's so useful to have that perspective because that's going to be the majority of people reading your book. So I think that's really important. And then yeah, so, so I made some edits based on that and then queried um, authors here, uh, sorry, agents here in the US. Um, and there was one in particular that I really wanted, but, you know, obviously you have to <laughs> kind of spread your, yeah, spread yeah, your yeah, chances. Yeah. So I think initially I um, queried maybe 10 agents and I think I got no's from maybe three I got a few requests for manuscripts and then maybe or three or four and then like a a couple I just never heard back from but I Uh ended up 
the one that I wanted was the one that I ended up with, which was great. So okay, um, it kind of worked out for the best since I was kind of querying the other nine just as backup for, for her. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's um, Jemima Forrester. Oh, Jemima's my UK agent oh, who I love. Okay, um, right. My US agent is uh, Michelle Brower, but Michelle works a lot with Jemima and I feel I'm so lucky to have those two as my agents. I love them. Um they 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 work very differently but in the perfect complement and i just love that i get to have two amazing agents right okay so and you have two specifically just because they obviously understand the different markets and they're there to like pitch in different markets exactly so jemima okay. uh sold it in the uk and australia and um michelle in the us oh okay really that's interesting okay am i right in thinking this novel when it went out to when your agents sent it out to to um to publishers it incited uh somewhat of a a, a wild auction yeah it did go to auction in um in the u.s and the and australia i think in the uk it was a preempt which means you know the publisher pays a certain amount of money up front to stop it from going to auction Um, but in the US, uh, I think it was, there were bids on it from five imprints across the the publishing houses. Wow. How long was it between sending it out and signing it? So I, it sold here, Michelle sold it here to St. Martin's, um, which is Macmillan here. And then she reached out to Jemima and I think it was at the end of 20, 21 perhaps um and she kind of said you know I've got this book that maybe you could look at selling next year um because I know it's the holidays and then Jemima read it and she said oh I think I can sell it now um (laughs) or something along those lines and then she did and and she um sent it out and and it yeah it happened really quickly and so it was sold before before the holidays Oh, wow. Yeah. Was it, I mean, I know that a lot of the, sometimes there's headlines that aren't wholly accurate, accurate, but I did see that, was it within like 24 hours it went out and was sold? Yeah. In the UK, it was very quick. It was, I remember I was actually volunteering on that day um, and was, you know, checking my phone intermittently and there were kind of (laughs) updates from Jemima, which was very exciting. And because, you know, I was so new to this process and never having written a book or never really knowing much about publishing. It was a very yes. thrilling. Yeah. I was going to say like, it must've been amazing um, yes. for, for like, you know, you don't really know how these things are going to go. You've never experienced this before. And I'm sure you spoke to people and you hear about books like dying on submission or mm. just like taking years before they get picked up and things like that. It must've been uh, mind blowing for you to suddenly be like, Oh my God, they've picked it up. This is an auction. This has been picked up in the UK. Yes. And actually I didn't because it was kind of ignorance is bliss. You know, I really didn't know anything about <laughs> yeah. the publishing. And so I, I'm kind of glad I didn't because now knowing I've since learned those experiences from people mm-hmm. and it makes me very grateful for what happened to me. But I think it was very nice that I just had no idea how anything was going to go. And so it was just a really fun process. Yes. Ignorance truly is bliss. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a proof of, of the of the book, which has a nice um, yellow cover. But I have to say, I was a little bit um, jealous when I did see the official color, um, especially the UK edition might yes. be one of the prettiest books I've seen in a very long time. The yep. US edition is also really nice, but the UK one I thought was so stunning. 
were you involved at all in the in the any input in the design yeah I, I did get to with both covers I got um they definitely asked for my feedback and I got to to give input but at a certain point, especially since I'm someone who has no experience in publishing, I think, again, mm-hmm. you need to trust that they understand the markets that yeah, they're aiming yeah, at. Yeah. And and because I, you know, am into art and design and I'm also, my tastes are very minimalist. And okay. so I think I really had to kind of be like, okay, you know, this is not for me. We're not trying to attract <laughs> me as a reader. Yeah. <laughs> We're trying to attract a lot of other people with lots of different tastes. And I think it's beautiful. And I love the UK one especially, which it's a, a the same one in uh, Australia and I think also Germany. But what I love is that the yellow and just the exuberance of the flowers really counters the fact that it's about death, which I think is something that initially people would, you know, it would make them pause before. But I mean, some people would be like, yes, this is great. But most people I think would kind of you're like, oh, do I want to read a book about death? And so having that really cheerful cover, cover, I think really helps. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Because it's, I mean, it is an overall uplifting book. It just happens to be in, pro- it's more like it's in proximity to death. Yeah, and, exactly. and less so about death. You know, it's how I describe Ted Lasso to people when people yeah. are, people are like, oh, the show about the football thing. And I'm like, it, it's, it's about football, but it's not about football. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that was, you know, the whole reason I wrote it was because I was someone who had anxieties around death since I was a kid. And so mm-hmm. I really wanted to write something that was joyful and uplifting and explored it in a way that would be accessible for someone like me who would usually avoid that type of book. Yes. Yeah. 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 You know, it's that kind of thing. I was a very similar way when I was younger and it it was actually Terry Pratchett that kind of made me open up to things like that because Terry Pratchett through all his books has death as a character, but death is never a scary or like threatening character is always a very kind of gentle and uh, nicely positioned character. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, it's such an, for me, a very relatable uh, thing at least. And hopefully a lot of other people find that too. So now that you've done this once, you've got the books going to, when this goes live, the book's out. So it's going to be out in, in a couple of weeks as of us recording this. Knowing how this all works now, having gone through the machine, uh, you no longer can claim ignorance. Uh, yeah. it's, um, <laughs> I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you're already well underway with, with a new manuscript. Is it, uh, is it still in a top secret phase? Yeah. I can't say too much about it, except that it's not about death. <laughs> <laughs> okay um, yeah so it won't be a sequel I mean there's death in it in the way that you know there's death in every book like in some way but not in the same way as as Clover um mm-hmm. but and I can also say that it's about siblings but that's okay that's okay. probably the most I'll say for now okay so it's a, a sort of family orientated thing um yes but without talking about the manuscript manuscript specifically, uh, you are you working with the same editor or editors, plural, that you yep. were for the first one? Yes. Yeah. So we'll go through the same process again. They'll all, I'll send the manuscript to all of them along with uh, Jemima and Michelle, and then they'll all give me feedback uh, in the one document, which I'm very grateful for. I think that's a lot more work for them because they, you know, really need to collaborate. But I think I've heard for, from other people who've been in a situation with several editors where they receive three separate manuscripts with feedback that it can be a bit okay. paralyzing, especially when the, the feedback conflicts. 
Yes. Yeah. Well, presumably it's, uh, I see, I'm going to assume it's in like a Google doc and they're all just editing an online document. Um, maybe at that, I usually get it as a, a Word doc, but yeah, probably maybe oh, okay, they, okay, they okay. work it as a, yeah. a Google doc. Yeah. <laughs> That's great though. You're so, you, you've basically got like a top, like an ultimate uh, critique group of like yeah, professional exactly. editors. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was hard for me because, um, you know, I was used to the first time where I worked with the critique partner who I am mm -hmm. working with on the second book just because I like to work that way but then and then the beta readers and then then the agent and then was making changes all the way along before it got to the editors so it's a little bit nerve-wracking to be sending them kind of the first draft yeah 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 at first I was like oh no well I'd prefer to send it to some other people first and my editors were like why that's literally why we're here yeah to to help you edit your book so take advantage of it and once I realized that I thought yeah well I'm not a querying author anymore you know this is you know what I'm doing so um because it was a two book deal so basically yeah. I, there's no risk of it not being sold published yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. um and so that it, but it did take me a little bit to get my head around that yeah it's a wholly different experience especially mm -hmm. when you're, we're on a multi-book deal and that the next book where you're now sort of creating it from inception like as in, uh, uh, did you even, did you like pitch the concepts to the editors before you even began? I did. And I gave yeah. them a bit of a, you know, rundown of where I thought the plot would go. So um, at least it's not, you know, surprise, this is what my <laughs> book's about. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah very different process um but but exciting i guess it's the the difference obviously other differences that you, you know you have a you're often going to have a shorter time scale to write it in yes but yeah you have such you have such a strong team around you now that um, exactly exactly and having been through that process and knowing kind of what they changed and the suggestions they made really mm -hmm. helped me with this next book i think it's probably you know i'm starting at a a higher point because yeah. I kind of know because especially with, since that was my first book, you know, there were just things I didn't really know about yes. fiction, even yeah. though I read widely, you know, thinking about writing it is, is very different. And, and that whole balance of, because I lean towards why saying less <laughs> and just <laughs> yeah. letting the reader like interpret it for themselves, but mm -hmm. which is definitely one way of writing. But if you want to reach a wider audience, Sometimes you do need to, you know, emphasize things more than you necessarily think you need to. Um, yes, that's and true. That, and that was a balance I really had to strike. And again, understand that I am not the reader of this book. So thinking about, and because it was important to me because of the topic, that it be accessible to as many people as possible, um, then that really influenced the way I kind of took that feedback. Yeah, it's about striking a balance, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, before we get to the final question, um, I, I do have a, a little hypothetical for you. Uh -huh. um, we, you've been through it now, like we said. You, you, you have a better understanding of how this all works. And knowing what you know now, if you could go back to when you first had the um, the idea for for, for your novel, uh, would you do anything differently? Um. I don't think so, but that's also, you know, the way I live my life, kind of, <laughs> you know, part of as part of the book, I read a lot about um, stoicism because they were very, you know, preoccupied with mortality and death. And but they also have the concept of amor fati, as in, you know, loving the fate that you have. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I kind of am always like, okay, well, this is the way it's kind of panning out. And for example, I'd had the idea for a long time before the pandemic, but I think if I'd actually forced myself to sit down and write it and tried to sell it before the pandemic, I'm not sure it would have resonated as much because we weren't, even though death has always and always will be present in our lives, you know, it wasn't a global kind of collective awareness of it being in our face. And so I really feel like it happened when it was meant to. So I think, you know, the fact that I didn't feel compelled to put pen to paper um, or finger to keyboard prior to that was the way it was meant to be. Yeah, no, that's, you sort of, yeah, you you sort of hit the zeitgeist without um, sort of um, getting it too much on the nose. Because I've spoken to a few agents who said they were inundated with manuscripts about pandemics oh, after gosh. the yeah I can and it's a bit yeah. like yeah no no one wants that we just no lived we that. don't want to relive that yeah. and uh, that was it was a very conscious choice to not mention the pandemic in the yeah. book okay, yeah okay yeah that's good oh, okay great that's so interesting um well that brings us on to the final question which uh which is always is um mickey if you were stranded on a desert island with a single book which book would you take yeah, so mine is going to be a bit of a nerdy answer because um, <laughs> okay. for context, I'm not someone who actually rereads books mm-hmm. often because um, I always feel like that's time I could be spent reading a new book and there's so many great new books out there. Um, yeah. And so the only time I reread books is a friend of gave me advice once that um, when I was learning French and Spanish, you know, a really good way to improve it is to read a book you've already read in that language because you have a concept of the story. Um, And so I would probably take a book that I've already read, hopefully a really long one, but in either French or Spanish because then I could could use it that way. Um, Or um, the very nerdy answer is is that I would take a dictionary of one of those languages (laughs) because I have so much time (laughs) that I could then use it to, to... really Im- improve my vocabulary for the time that I hopefully get off the island. But, um, or I would just take a new book. And in that context, some books that I'm looking forward, if, it, if I was planning to be stranded in the next few weeks, um, <laughs> yeah. I'd love, I'm, I've got on my shelf, um, Sea Change by Gina Chung. I'm looking forward to reading. Um, okay. Banyan Moon by Tao Tai. Uh, All Night Pharmacy by Ruth Madievsky. I think that one's out yet. And then um, Strange Sally Diamond as well is, okay. is one. So, yeah, just a really thick one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're, <laughs> kind of, you're kind of, you know, free with it. You're kind of like, yeah, I'll take the, the one that I take will probably be the one that I should take. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, Go exactly. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> whatever happens to be there, whatever floats by. <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, thanks so much, Mickey, for, for coming on the podcast and sharing all of your, your experiences, telling us about the book. Um, it's been really fun chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time. You're so welcome. And for anyone uh, wanting to keep up with what Mickey is doing, you can follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Brammer. That's M-I-K-K-I-B-R-A-M-M-E-R. And to make sure you don't miss an episode of this podcast, follow along on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. To support the show, you can head over to Patreon. And for more bookish chat, check out my other podcast, The Chosen Ones and Other Tropes. Thanks again to Mickey and thanks to everyone listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.